picking up where we left off last week. In verse 9, Paul writes to Titus, Exhort servants or slaves to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, or not ripping off, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. He was writing to slaves. The Greeks despised manual labor. The Romans despised manual labor as well. In fact, the Romans had become pampered. If you remember, we mentioned last week that the Romans, by and large, thought that it was beneath the dignity of a Roman citizen to, as Bob was sharing, put your blue jeans on and get your hands dirty. That's for slaves. And so slaves were used to run the entire Roman Empire. One half of the 120 million Roman citizens, that is 60 million people, were slaves at the time that Paul writes this letter to Titus. And they were all of different ages and different kinds. They were younger, they were older, they were male, they were female. Some were menial laborers, some were professional laborers. And so what Paul does is he writes to all of the age groups and the gender groups, and then he gets specific about slaves and what being a good slave or a good servant is all about. Now we remember a principle from last week, and I'm reiterating a little bit just for the sake of tying it all together. Submitting ourselves to authority is basic. It is foundational to the running of any institution or any society. In the book of Judges, it says, Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now, that is sort of the trend these days in our country. The trend in our country is there's no moral base or absolutes. What is good for you is not good for me necessarily. So everybody's motto in this country is, What's good for me personally? What makes me feel good? What's in it for me? rather than what's in it for all of us. You cannot run successfully a business or a society or a nation that way. There has to be a, a rule, there has to be an authority, there has to be chiefs, and there has to be those who follow the orders. That's just basic to society. But what Paul does is he takes it a step further. He doesn't just say, here's the order. He dignifies the order. He dignifies it by saying, if you're a slave... Be the best slave and work as if you are doing it personally for Jesus Christ. He is your master. You have a master according to the flesh, but you have a master in heaven. And so in Ephesians, he says, be obedient as you would be obedient to Jesus Christ. Ever since I was about, I don't know, 11 or 12, I had a job. Now, I don't know what the child labor laws were in those days, and I don't think my parents really cared all that much, but I always had a job, even before that. I had chores around the house. And then my first job, I think I was 12 years old, I worked at Emil's Shoe Shop in California where I lived, and um, I really didn't do much except wash his huge window. I mean, this thing was from 
you know, ceiling to floor, and it was an entire window front, and he wanted me to come in every day and just make that glass spotless. And all the mirrors in his place, just make it spotless. That was my job. Later on, I worked at Hugo's Delicatessen, and I stocked the shelves. Uh, I worked mowing lawns. I worked as a busboy. And I had a variety of jobs. I worked at Art Adams Chevron Station, pumping gas and washing UPS trucks. I always had some kind of job. In 1973, God did a job on me. He rescued my heart and He saved me. And I went through some radical changes, as we all do when we get saved. And so I began wondering, uh, what now does God want me to do? Certainly I have a new purpose in life, a new mission in life. I'm on a mission from God, you might say. What kind of a job would it be that God would have me to do? Certainly a dignified kind of a job and um, some place that I could share the gospel. And uh, so I prayed. And after I prayed, I applied. I think a lot of people pray for jobs and they stop right there. I prayed, I applied, and I got a job. Now, I needed to be taught vital lessons. Because I had no idea about the Christian work ethic. And I was about to get a fast lesson from God Himself. I eventually got hired. Nobody wanted me. But I managed to land a job at uh, the Jess Ranch in Southern California. It was a turkey ranch, and uh, they raised turkeys, and they uh, fed the turkeys, and they slaughtered the turkeys, and they patched, uh, packaged the turkeys and sent them out to people all around the state, especially at Thanksgiving time. And so I worked diligently for an entire day at Jess Ranch. That's right. I worked a full eight hours, and then I quit. I'll tell you what, after working with turkeys that much, I have a whole different view of Thanksgiving now. <laughs> not that I'm up for turkeys' rights or anything, but I'll tell you, it was not an easy job. And it was just standing in line, basically, all day long. And the turkeys were killed, they were boiled, they were put through a huge vat, and people would put them up on an assembly line chain, and the chain would run through a, a room this size. And uh, hundreds of us were in there doing various jobs. My job was when the turkey made its way past my face on a chain, I would take its legs, the feet had just been cut off by the people in front of me, one on either side, and I'd take the legs and I'd put them on a hook. That was it. That's all I had to do. I didn't have to get trained long for this job. I just had to lift the turkey up and put it in a hook and lift the next turkey up and put it in a hook. I'll tell you what, I remember more of that job than probably every other job I have ever done. Because it was so utterly boring. Eight hours seemed like eight years. Now at the end of that day, I came up with some flaky, poor excuse. And I just said, you know, uh, I'm just not called to hook turkeys, all right? So I quit. And I remember I had prayed the week before, Oh God, I want to serve you. I want to just witness on the job. Please give me a job. Any job, God, any job I'll serve to, uh, to the glory of God and just to, you know, for your glory. Just, I had a big long prayer and God gave me a job and I quit. And that night I said, Oh God, just get me another job. Any job, Lord. Anything at all. And I ate my words. It's like the Holy Spirit tapped me on the shoulder. And I didn't know it at that time, but faithfulness to that menial job was a gauge of my heart. 
and it didn't look good. My faithfulness to that menial job was a gauge of my heart. I had all sorts of flaky excuses, but my heart was shown. Now, Paul was a tent maker, not what we would call a fascinating entrepreneurial profession. He made tents out of goat's hair. It was a noble profession for a rabbi, but it was not by and large a noble profession for people in the Roman Empire. Nonetheless, he did it. And he spoke often about labor and work in almost every epistle. Either it's slaves he wrote to, or people who were employers, or people who had any kind of a work at all. He spoke about it, and he spoke about it with dignity. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, as most of you know, has the job of tending, washing the feet of, cleaning the sores of, and cleaning after people with great diseases like leprosy, the lepers of Calcutta. And she said, quote, There is always the danger that we may just do the work for the sake of the work. This is where the respect and the love and the devotion come in, that we do it to God, to Jesus Christ, and that's why we try to do it as beautifully as possible. And I'll tell you, it shows in her work, because she sees every one of those people that she brings in as, she sees as, I'm doing this for Jesus Christ. She does it as unto Him. Work in the Scripture is exonerated. Now, it's interesting, Bob was sharing, I agree with, with so much of what he said, the idea today that people land a job and they expect the employer, that the employer owes me something rather than you're hired for a good day's work. And the Bible exonerates that. Way back in the book of Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, this oldest creation, in Genesis 2 we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. So from the very beginning of creation, man worked. Now, some of you might say, yeah, but work's a curse. Remember, God cursed the earth. No, work is not cursed. The sweat and the agony that work brings because of the fall due to sin is a curse. But work is not a curse. In fact, it's a blessing. Part of the Ten Commandments reads, Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. Proverbs 14 reads, All hard work brings a profit. But mere talk leads only to poverty. Not only is work good, but good, hard, fatiguing work is good. The writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, wrote, The sleep of a laborer is sweet. Have you ever noticed that? You have a good, hard day of work. And I've worked many times in my garden trying to pull weeds or trying to plant this or that. And, and being tall and arched over all day, my back hurts, but my sleep is so sweet. It just takes it all out of you. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. So work in general is elevated. Work for a Christian is especially dignified. Now, Christians need to work for a lot of reasons, right? The first and most obvious reason is to provide food, clothing, and shelter for himself and his family. And the Bible says, Paul wrote to Timothy and says, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. And if a man doesn't provide for his own household, that man is worse than an unbeliever. Those are heavy words. Also, a Christian should work 
to share the gospel, right? It's a means to an end, not just to get a paycheck, but to share the gospel with people who would never read the Bible or go to church, but they'll watch the way we work, and perhaps, God willing, they will listen to our words at the appropriate time. Also, the third reason a Christian should work is to get enough money to help people who can't work, the needy. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, Paul wrote, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Now, we must be careful that we don't stretch this beyond its limitations in context. Paul is not speaking of every jobless person on earth is not worth his salt or that he's worse than an infidel. The idea here is not people who want to work but can't find work. The idea here is people who have work given to them, but they are idle. They will not do it. They say, no, 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 I'm too important for that job. I would like maybe like the president of the corporation job, something like that. I can't start down here. The idea is not joblessness. The idea is idleness. And the scripture in Proverbs 6, chapter 9, or verse 9 says, How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Even the way it's written, it kind of lulls you into a sleep, doesn't it? <laughs> and poverty will come upon you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. So it's the idea of idleness. Now every time I'm driving and I see somebody with a sign, I believe them at first. When it says, we'll work for food, I believe that there are people who are truly down and out and will work for food. Uh, I've given many of them, as much as will do it, jobs at my home or here at the church. But I've got to admit... Many, and I can't, of course, read the heart or the conscience or the motivation of all that hold up a sign. That would be unfair and hypocritical. But many of the people that I personally encountered do not want a job. They want a handout. I know this because I have offered several of them not only jobs where they could work, and I pay them that day, but I've given, I've offered transportation. To Calvary Chapel, come, I'll give you a job. You need a job today, you need a job tomorrow, this week, I'll put you to work. I'll pick you up. Only to have so many of them not show. So while I think people are sometimes honest when it says, we'll work for food, and I think you ought to try to take them up on that, not just to assuage your own conscience and say, here's a buck, I feel better, now I'm going to drive on. Give them the dignity of a job. There are others who are not honest who are idle. And I think if they were honest, they would say, you know, we'll beg for a handout rather than we'll work for a job or for food. So, take them up on it when you see it. Offer to bring them over here. Tell them about us. We'd love to have that opportunity. So, Paul gives profiles. And he ends with a profile, and I'm tying it all together to show you that Paul just didn't write in little breaks, but he ties it all together in a letter. In the first several verses of chapter 2, 
It's all a continuation of one thought. He profiles the Christian. This is what a Christian older man ought to be like in character. This is what a Christian younger man ought to be like in character. Here's a Christian older woman's profile, a Christian younger woman's profile. And here's the profile of a godly slave who may be from any one of those classes I just mentioned. They had to work hard. After giving the profile, he gives the purpose of the profile. And then he gives the principle behind it, which is grace. The profile, young, old, male, female, slave. We've gone through all that. And then in verse 10 is the purpose for it. And let's look at it very carefully. Not pilfering, but showing good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. That to me is one of the most beautiful concepts in all of the Scripture. That I, by my life, by my lifestyle, by the way I work, can adorn the doctrine of God. Doctrine and teaching must always be tested by those who claim to believe it. Didn't Jesus say, you'll know the tree by its fruit? How can you test doctrine? How can you test belief systems? Well, watch the lifestyle of the people who espouse it the result of the product, right? And so to adorn the doctrine of God. Um, something sticks out to me. I want you to notice how often he mentions doctrine. I know a lot of Christians say, doctrine really isn't important. Now look at verse 1. As for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Verse 5 speaking here to the older women, that they should be discreet, actually teaching the younger women to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Then in verse 8, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. And then finally in verse 10, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Notice, the highest interest... The highest interest of a Christian worker, of a Christian man, of a Christian woman, young or old, slave or free, the highest interest is not himself, but at how he adorns the doctrine of God, how he complements the Bible. It's the Word of God, not himself. That, to me, is so fascinating that Paul didn't say... Your main emphasis in life should be that you find a position that you feel fulfilled in. I mean, how fulfilled can a slave be? Right? How fulfilled could a slave feel? But the idea is that whatever station you are in, the Word of God is seen as preeminent in your life for the sake of unbelievers. That's what Jesus meant, I think, when He said, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So the gospel is supreme. What is my life saying about the gospel that I speak about and that I say I believe in? What is my lifestyle saying about it? Now, this concept of young, old, male, female, slave or free, whatever position, is to show the gospel. That is so different from the emphasis of the prosperity gospel, 
that has been a spouse in the last few years and unfortunately is not dead yet. It is around the landscape that you just name it and you claim it and God wants the best for you and the best physical blessings for you and the richest and the biggest. The idea is that it's become self-serving. You do it for yourself rather than for what this, my lifestyle, does for the Word of God so that unbelievers see it. Joe Magliato, I have his book, it's, it's hilarious in some places, it's sad in others, but he writes a book called The Wall Street Gospel. And I think he sort of hit the nail on the head when he said, churches in trying to make it easier to serve the Lord are being forced to become more creative in their packaging. Come in and worship in air-conditioned comfort. Our deacons will meet you at the parking lot. Do personally chauffeur your car to a parking space. No tipping necessary. And for a dollar or two, our deacons will assign a crew to wash and wax your car while you wait and worship. Our pastor is so broad-minded that you will never get upset with his messages. He'll get you in and out painlessly. His sermons will pep you up, calm you down, clean you out, but they won't disturb your conscience. We make it easy with no obligation, no commitment, no responsibility, no change of lifestyle, no discipline, no repentance, and no growth. We make it cheap and easy. Painless Christianity is the Wall Street gospel. But you can't take the cross or the cost out of Christianity and still have the gospel that Jesus died for. Well, that's powerful. So the preeminent thing, slave or free, male or female, whatever station you are in life, is what does what I do say about what I believe in, the Word of God, what I say I follow. Now, the Word is fascinating. That you may adorn, isn't that beautiful, the gospel, adorn. The word in Greek is kosmeo. What does that sound like? Cosmetic. It means that your lifestyle is to be a cosmetic, the blush, the eyeliner, and so forth, to the Word of God. That you can beautify this book. Listen, people will never read this book in the world. Most unbelievers I know aren't curious enough to sit down at one reading and say, I'm going to find out what this book says. But they're curious enough to see the adornments, the makeup, the jewels that surround it the lives of those people who profess it. The Amplified Bible translates it, so that in everything they may be an ornament and do credit to the teaching which is from and about God our Savior. So you can beautify the Bible. How? Do you do it by passing out tracts while you're at work and saying, I'm sorry, boss, I can't work right now. I'm praying for the needs of the world. No, you should be godly enough to do that on your own time and godly enough to work hard for the guy who's paying you to do a job. Work hard, like Bob was sharing at the beginning. And I told you before, I worked with a guy like this who thought that that's what God called him to do, to share the gospel at the expense of his employer who paid him to do a job. And he was our intern. No, he was not our intern. He's the guy who would go upstairs and get the patients from the rooms and uh, bring the patients down in the hospital so that we could x-ray them and do CAT scans on them and so forth. And uh, the orderly. And, you know, he'd go up for a patient who wouldn't show up for 30, 45 minutes. And we'd be already into the next time slot for the next patient or two, and it got to be old. I finally drug him aside. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm doing God's work. 
I'm witnessing. I was sharing the gospel with this patient. I said, you know, I commend you for your zeal. But be zealous enough to go up at your lunch break and do it. Well, you can't tell me that, brother. You should, of all people, know that we should preach the gospel. So that's right. Preach the gospel by doing a good job. Work hard. Be so good that everybody says, what's with this guy? He works harder than any other orderly. What does he have to say? That's very, very important and fundamental. And Paul shared that all over the place. And I think of Daniel. Daniel, from early age to older age, was a faithful guy in every realm. Under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar, under the leadership of Belshazzar, when the kingdom went over to the Medes and the Persians, under Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. He was one of the three guys that oversaw the whole kingdom. And because he was so good, Darius wanted to promote him to numero uno underneath himself, of course. And that made all the other guys jealous. And so they tried to find something that was a flaw in the work ethic of Daniel. And you know what the scripture says? They could find nothing. That's a free translation. He was faithful in all that he did. And they were unable to find anything in the life of Daniel. That is a great testimony of a Christian worker. Paul had this in mind in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You don't have to turn to it. You may want to make note of it and look at it later. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. He said that you should also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and lack nothing. You know, Peter wrote a letter sometime after this, and he basically said, you ought to live such good lives before pagans that if they have any accusation against you, they can't sustain it because of the lifestyle, the adornment, the cosmetic of the gospel. Now, the early church, I think, took this literally and You know, sometimes we read the Bible and we think, does it really mean that? I don't think it really means that. It probably means something a lot less than that. Well, Justin Martyr, a writer from the 2nd century A.D., which is not too long after this stuff was written, shared that the early church did take this stuff seriously, and he wrote, Many who have come in contact with us were overcome and changed from violent and tyrannical characters, either from having watched the consistency of their Christian neighbors or from having observed the wonderful patience of Christian travelers when overcharged or from doing business with Christians. Wow! Christian travelers and Christian businessmen were so ethical that unbelievers were convicted. That's a good testimony. Now, when you do this, you're going to start seeing changes in people around you. Workers, bosses, supervisors. They're going to look at you differently. They're going to listen differently. You've earned their respect, so to speak. It may not change immediately. It may change slowly, but it will change certainly. Just as slavery was not abolished in the Roman Empire immediately, but did you know that not long after Christianity penetrated the Roman Empire, that slavery did become abolished? Because mostly of that ethic of the slave and the master being now brother and brother in the same family. It certainly changed the relationship of slave to master. 
which eventuated in the change and the overthrow of slavery. Besides this, you know, God pays well. Doesn't He? God pays well. God always rewards you. Even if your boss is a creep, God is wonderful. And God pays awesome benefits. And you know what I think? I think God pays so well that if it were possible to have remorse in heaven, which I don't think we will, if it were possible, we would be remorseful that we didn't work harder on earth to serve our earthly master that we might adorn the doctrine of Christ. Don't you? I think that we would say, I wish I served Jesus Christ more than I did because God's benefits are so wonderful. And that's what Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So the profile of the young men, the older men, the younger women, the younger men, and the slaves, the purpose of the profile is that the doctrine of God might be adorned. And uh, verse 5, the word of God may not be blasphemed. That's the purpose of it. Then there's a principle, and we're only going to touch on it tonight because it's too vast. It covers too much, past, present, and future. But we're going to touch on it. In verse 11, it's all part of the same thought. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special peepers, peeper. Well, don't you know what a peeper is? And this is no. People, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Now, this is not a new section. Though if you have a translation like I have, this might be set apart and paragraphed and you might have a subheading uh, on top of this. It's all part of the same thought. The Christian lifestyle is in view. The Christian lifestyle for older, younger, and so forth, male and female and slave, is in view here. And then he ties grace into the whole picture by the word for. That's the first word that is used in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now, there's a lot to say about grace. There's a lot to say about these next few verses. But I want to tie it in to our theme of the Christian worker. Responsible grace. The grace of God has appeared to all men. How does God demonstrate His grace to an unsaved world? Here's how. And this is the theme of this whole section. God demonstrates His grace and His ability to save people by using the lives of the people He's already saved. That's the idea here. God has changed old, young, male, female slaves. They are so different from worldly people. The grace of God is so demonstrated in their lives that they are so different. The grace of God has appeared to all men, all classes of men, and these young, old, male, female, and slaves prove it by their lifestyle. That's the idea of the word for. It's a word that ties everything together. It's a primary particle of speech 
that assigns reason to the sentence. It's reaching back to the beginning of chapter 2 and taking it forward. Salvation for all men. Here's the idea. The same grace that saved you is the grace that will sustain you now. Now, in verses 11 through 15, Paul goes back and he speaks about election and God saved us. And finally, uh, he's appeared. The grace of God has appeared, speaking of Jesus Christ. He's elected you in the past. He has saved you in the present and is sanctifying you. And one day you'll be glorified as you look for the blessed hope. So if the grace of God extends that far back to elect you before you were born and extends that far into the future when you'll be glorified, God's going to take care of the in-between stuff. So the same grace that saved you can keep you as a godly man, woman, or worker. That's the idea of tying these concepts in together. Here's the profile, here's the purpose, and here's the principle. God's grace has appeared for all men. Now, let's, we have a few minutes left. Let's touch on grace. Let's tie a few things together. Grace is a common New Testament concept. It's all over the place, isn't it? We read about it. A lot of times we don't know what it is. When I was a young boy and grew up in a church, and uh, the priest and my mom and the nuns talked about grace, I had not a clue what it meant. I actually thought it was an item, a physical item that God gives. And I kept wondering as a little kid, when am I going to get this grace they talk about? What does it look like? What color is it? And I had no idea what it is. If you were to look up the term grace in probably every other source but the Bible, you would be misled as to its meaning in the Bible. For instance, if you were to look up grace in Webster's Dictionary, it would say, number one, a short prayer at meal asking blessing or giving thanks. And now we say, let's say grace. Number two, a disposition or an act of kindness or clemency. Oh, she's so gracious. Number three, a charming trait or accomplishment. Number four, the quality of being considerate or thoughtful. Now that's really not the idea of the biblical term of grace. If you were to look at other sources of literature, for instance, the word where we get our term grace is from a Latin word, gracia, which sounds like gracias, and it simply means a giving of thanks or favor or charm. Thank you, favor, or charm. That's not the idea of grace in the New Testament. If you were to go farther back into Greek literature and see how it is used, it's the term charis, charis. And it was the idea of royalty being nice to slaves or to inferior beings. I'm going to show my favor, a nice disposition to people who are inferior to me. Now that's closer, but it's not close enough. The term charis appears 150 times in the New Testament, and the basic idea is that God shows His incomparable love toward fallen sinners. God acts toward us in a very undeserved way. It is unmerited, undeserved favor. It is absolutely free. You don't deserve it. If you're sitting there tonight thinking, you know, God ought to be good to me. God ought to bless me. God ought to. You have no idea of the concept of grace. It's the idea of an unworthy sinner drinking in the incomparable love of God, not based upon what we've done, but based upon His own nature. That's the idea of grace. And grace always 
includes giving. It's, it's part of its nature. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He acted in grace. Jesus Christ gave Himself for the sins of the world. The term for spiritual gifts in the New Testament. Charismata. Spiritual gifts. The idea of giving. These are graces that God gives to the church. Gifts. It includes giving. So the idea is that God gives us an undeserved or unearned gift. I, I, I like to illustrate grace by getting a ticket on the freeway, probably because I've gotten so many in my lifetime, and I can understand this from personal experience. If you drive too fast and the cop pulls you over and gives you a ticket, you deserve it. You shouldn't whine. If you broke the law, that's justice. You deserve it. Go home, pay up. If the policeman said, you were going too fast, but I'm giving you a warning. I'm not going to give you a ticket, though you deserve it. That's mercy, not grace. That's not getting what you deserve, i.e. punishment. Grace goes beyond mercy. It's not only withholds the negative, it gives the positive in an undeserved way. So let's say the cop said, you were going too fast, 85 and a 55, and you should get a ticket. I'm not going to give you a ticket. I'm not going to give you a warning. In fact, I'm going to give you 20 bucks. <laughs> that would be grace. I don't think you'd ever see it happen, but that would be grace. God could act toward you in justice. Now, for the life of me, I could never figure out a person saying, God, give me what I deserve. No thanks, God. Scratch that. No. Next. But understanding God's grace, you understand that God acts toward you, though you don't deserve it. And blesses you, though you don't deserve it. And you know, it might seem a little bit almost irreverent. But a person who understands grace expects to be blessed while unworthy because that's God's character. That's God's character. That's grace. Now he says the grace of God, this free gift of God, this undeserved activity, has appeared to all men. It's appeared to all men. The word appeared is important. It's the word epiphane, epiphany. It speaks of the first coming of Jesus Christ. There's only two epiphanies, the first and second. He came the first time, he'll come the second time. So the idea is that Jesus Christ came to the earth. That's grace in human form and performed the ultimate act of grace by dying for your sins on the cross and winning you back to God. That same grace that bought you can preserve you and enable you all the way through your life as a Christian, young person, old person, male, female, or slave. That grace. So by our lives, we adorn the gospel. We show it off by our lifestyle. We attract people to it. That's the idea behind the adorning of the gospel of God. And by our lives, we demonstrate the grace of God. It's appeared to all men. We'll have more to say about this next week. But I just want to end up by saying, I think the greatest motivator for hard work is the grace of God. It is. I think it's the greatest motivator. Sometime I'll catch myself. I'll see what God has done in my life. I'll see the 
circumstances that are surrounding my life, and I'll see it with different eyes. I'll just kind of, it just, I'll, it'll penetrate. Now, look at the wife that God gave me, and the son he gave me, and the fellowship he gave me, the friends that he gave me, the relatives that he gave me, and I think, God, I am so undeserving. You are so amazing to me. And it doesn't become, what do I have to do for God? It's like, what, what do I get to do for you today, God? This is so fun. What do I get to do? How could you use me? A 19th century German revivalist, Christopher Blumhart, said, It is not possible to settle down comfortably through grace and do nothing and care for nobody else. If I am saved by grace, then I am a worker through grace. The greatest Christian workers I have ever met are people who are responding to God's unmerited favor. They're not trying to work it off. They're just so thrilled that God chose them and saved them. They just want to do something, and they're blessed that they get to. They get to be involved. They get to be co-laborers with Christ. Those are the kind of people you want in the ministry. Those are the kind of people you want serving in lay leadership. That's godly leadership. In the days of Queen Elizabeth I of England, there was a woman who was determined to kill her. And she, in her mind, had it all planned out, the, the assassination. And so, before bedtime, she hid in one of the queen's closets in her private chambers. She hid there with a dagger, waiting for the queen to open up that closet at night, put on her nightgown and retire to bed, and she was going to stab her. Well, what this lady didn't know is she didn't study the palace procedures well in advance enough, and she didn't know that there are chambermaids and there are guards who check absolutely every room, closet, nook and cranny of the palace before bed. It's their procedure to keep the queen safe. They found her. They brought her before the queen. She knew that she really had no leg to stand on, so she simply cast herself before the queen and pleaded for mercy. And she said, I beg grace from the queen. The queen looked at her and said, If I grant you my favor, my grace, what will you promise me in the future? The woman said, Your Majesty, I beg your pardon. Grace is not grace that has conditions or precautions. I'm not asking for justice or a deal. I want your, your grace. The queen said, Fine then. I grant you my grace. You are free. And she was let go. History tells us that this woman, who would be an assassin, turned in to be the most faithful servant in all of her palace. Because grace was extended, her response was, I want to serve the one who set me free. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that how we ought to be toward God? This is the profile of the Christian, older, younger, male, female servant, whatever class you're in. This is the profile, different from the world. The purpose is to adorn the doctrine of God, that people would look at our lives and say, that's beautiful. I thirst, I hunger for that. And then we would demonstrate God's grace by our lives. And we should. You can never expect an unbeliever to trust that God could save them if they can't look at our lives and see God saving and changing us. Right? they got to see, well, it works. It works in your life. God has not only saved you, but He's kept you. You're still serving Him. I still see that fervor and that love in your heart, that keeping power, that changing power. Then the gospel is adorned 
and there is a response. Father, we thank you tonight for the time spent, for the testimony of Bob and the music provided by such gifted musicians and worship leaders. We thank you for Sebastian going overseas to Africa and so many like him, men and women, young and old alike in this fellowship, that just get turned on to serve you because they're responding to what you've done in their lives. We want to mature, Lord. We want to grow. I pray wherever we find ourselves in life, whatever station, whatever position, that we would see that high and holy calling of being a jewel, a cosmetic to the Word of God, that we would adorn it. I pray, Father, that You'd cause our work ethic to exceed that of our boss or supervisor because You're the boss. You're the supervisor. And we want to do it unto You because we love You and we're just tickled that You've changed us and that You let us serve You. I thank You for these people, this flock of hungry believers who is dedicated to understanding Your Word and growing in grace. And I pray that we would grow in grace, Lord. That it would be our nature to also give and forgive. That we would demonstrate Your character through our lives. Thanks, Lord, for this little time of repose during our work week. And I pray, Lord, though most of us have one day of work left tomorrow, I pray that it would be a day that counts. People would see You in us. Lord, we also acknowledge that many of us have failed in these areas, and that's why it's so refreshing to talk about Your grace. Because we don't deserve anything from You, and yet You lavish it upon us. Forgive us. Change us. Help us not to live under the remorse of the past, the guilt of the present, but to look with hope to the future, the possibility of a life surrendered to Your service, responding to Your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.